Hello and welcome to Alexandra Marshall Live, the show where we go in search of the courageous culture warriors who pick up their pitchforks and wade into the woke waters of the Western world, attempting to divine some kind of sanity from the chaos. Joining me today, we have an extraordinary researcher, public speaker and writer who hacks through the incomprehensible layers of government spin to uncover terrifying policies that are set to govern our lives. Andrew Bolt described her writing as outstanding, and I have to say that I agree with him, having read so many of her pieces over the years. I speak of Joe Nova, who joins us now. Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here, Alexander. You're doing a great job. Thank you very much. Well, Joe, our viewers are no doubt all huge fans of your work, which you've been doing on your blog over at joenova.com.au. But I always find it interesting to begin with the contrast of how our guests describe themselves versus MSN. Now, you say that you are a science blogger and author of the Skeptics Handbook, and according to Oxfam, your influence was equal to NASA during the climate change saga that blew up a few years ago. Meanwhile, Wikipedia says you are prominent for promoting climate change denial. Is it odd having this Jekyll and Hyde public persona with the award-winning writer on one side and climate-denying kook on the other? It's it's just a measure of the polarisation of our world, isn't it? I mean, it didn't used to be like that. If you think about, you know, 20 years ago or 30 years ago or the world we thought we still lived in, there would be people on both ends of the spectrum, but most people would be in the middle. We would have a public debate, a town hall discussion, and most issues there would be a kind of like a, a, a bell curve where most people are, have a common opinion in the middle and they're small. On the, but we live in such a strange filtered world now where the media has become an active player rather than, uh, you know, an, an impartial reporter that we actually have a U-shaped curve where there's almost no one in the middle anymore on a topic. You're either one end of the spectrum or the other. And on one half of the spectrum, which I used to be on, which is, you know, essentially the green left kind of collectivist half, you know, there's a lot of people who are just oblivious. They have no idea that there's even another half to the spectrum out there. So it's interesting. I feel like I'm a little bridge between the two worlds in some ways. And But, uh, yeah, I would never have expected to end up here, with, especially not with the trajectory I was on to start with. No, well, uh, Wikipedia doesn't see you as a bridge. Wikipedia's thrown you off onto the fringes there, well and truly. But Oxfam's reference was during that moment of rebellion where it looked as if the public might finally take a stand against what was then called global warming. Are you disappointed that the ideology wasn't defeated in its cradle? Look, Climate Gate, which is the, the moment you're talking about, was so important in November 2009, and it was just extraordinary what happened then. It kind of set the world alight in that a lot of people who were on the fence or undecided shifted because they could see the corruption going on with the scientists talking about, you know, not handing their data over in case someone found them wrong and hiding the decline. And, the, you know, it was just such obvious you didn't need to be a scientist to understand that kind of language at that not how a you know impartial scientist and honest scientist works and it is disappointing in some ways that it didn't all in there because in the world we thought we lived in it would have and the media would have started reporting on scientists as if they were like the rest of the community not saints or angels but you know humans who when given grants and funding to find a disaster find the disaster that they were paid to find. So, you know, as I keep saying, we paid to find a crisis and we got what we paid for. 
Yes, well, that really was that turning point where we just had all these catastrophes predicted that never came to pass. We meant to have the Ice Age that didn't happen. We had all the movies being put out to that effect. And we had the hole in the ozone layer when I was growing up, which of course didn't end the world either. And it felt like that was the moment when the scientific community should have come down and said, well, obviously what's being said here is wrong because its predictions are incorrect. But we didn't see that happen. Are you surprised that there wasn't more criticism at the time? Look, it, there was a lot of criticism at the time and we did score some wins there. We had some huge protests and we managed to, you know, you think about the days of the Liberal Party in Australia at that point, we, um, we ended up with Tony Abbott winning by just one vote. Oh my gosh, it was so close. We almost had an emissions trading scheme way back then. And, uh, you know, ClimateGate made a big difference. So thanks to FOIA, the, the secret person who the insider, we believe, who, who was a whistleblower, took great risks to leak out that information and those emails because it did make a difference. It did delay. You know, we have an emissions trading scheme now, but it delayed things for a long time. It suppressed what was an enormous steamroller at the time. And so I still view it as a win. And what happened over the next few years was online, we were just winning. In uh, You know, I would score top page on Google ranks and Google searches for things. And it, hence that comment you put at the start where I was described as equal to Oxfam in some bizarre leftist kind of report that they checked all my links or the number of incoming things and, oh, my gosh, she has the same power as NASA. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's absurd. But such was the time. It, and, and yet we saw by 2014 or 2015, Google started to change their algorithms. Uh, it didn't matter how well we scored, how many incoming links we had, unless they were from top-ranked NASA pages themselves, we were down-ranked. And so Google changed the algorithms to um, suppress half the, the, the side of the, um, of the debate. And so it became a different kind of war in the last seven or eight years to what it was back then. Well, even uh, worse, Joe, is that all the Gen Zs and even a lot of millennials missed the first uh, debate. They don't. They don't remember it, or they weren't old enough to know what was going on. So they aren't aware that this was nearly uh, crushed early on, and so they've been brought up in an environment where this is not a debate. It's presented to them as a fact. Hence, they go out and glue themselves to the road. But before we get there, I first came across your work because of the great Rowan Dean and his program Outsiders. And now your work is frequently referenced during their Ice Age Watch segment, which is my personal favourite. And aside from your blog, you're also widely published in The Spectator Australia and The Australian. And you'll be pleased to know that I've heard from politicians that your work is widely read by those in Parliament. And your reach in politics is, I guess, quite significant. What's it like knowing that your well, work yes. is affecting policy change inside government? Look, this is the remarkable thing. And when I started blogging, I was just a mum at home. Uh, I couldn't travel a lot, so I just went online. I didn't even know what a blog was. But having travelled to Bali for the UNFCCC as a nobody, you know, and I went because my husband was asked to go. Um, and so I just toured along with him. My background is as a science communicator, my profession, you know, uh, explaining the world of science to people. And I could see there was this enormous gap there. The most passionate people at the UN conference in 2007 were the journalists from New Scientist, Scientific American and the ABC. 
And it was it was just amazing. There were 12,000 people at that conference. They're two-week conferences. And we're talking Olympic-level junkets here for rewards for scientists and people from the Greens and the Wilderness Society can turn up and feel like heroes and have drinks in the evening with fellow kind of, you know, cult followers. And there were 12 of us sceptics. And it, so it was this hilarious imbalance, but it was so much fun. And I got to meet the leading stars then, the Mark Moranos and the Christopher Monktons, and and see how they worked. And I could also see that there was enormous gap there. So that was when I, I created the Skeptics Handbook and just put that out and started a blog. I didn't even know what a blog was. And the amazing thing was the way the internet, wow, the internet got um, responses from, you know, professors in Canada and donations from from um, PhD nuclear physicists in Norway. And it was just such an opening. It was really extraordinary to see how that took off and the furore that it caused and to be part of the debate online. And it's like the ultimate game of mental tennis. You know, the UN has billions of dollars worth of, of funding. And there was us turning up, 12 of us, to this conference to take them on. And they, the game of tag we played them was so, uh, it was so illustrative of the way they worked. They then pretended that they didn't want to be one-sided. So we would put on an event in a room and then at the last minute they would cancel the room and they would move us, they would forget to put the title of our presentation on their ticker board. You know, it was just underhanded stuff all the way. And so we would end up sneaking into their main rooms and putting out lots of graphs of the hotspot by, you know, we just bought printers and we just we just printed masses of stuff, graphs everywhere. And so it was the funniest kind of, of a guerrilla warfare, I guess, in a way. Um, it has become so much darker in the last few years than that as the money is just so enormously big and one-sided. But in response to that, I guess we there's been an upswelling. I can see there's a groundswell of people leaving mainstream media, moving to these other media outlets, the development of new media channels. So it's great to see that, you know, the sensible side is finding its feet, but boy, what a race. Well, it's interesting that you say that because the internet was a great equaliser because I'm sure you remember when to get published or to have your word put in print used to be very difficult. You had to go through certain channels and be involved with certain groups and establishments. And then all of a sudden, here's this thing called the internet and anyone could put their word out publicly for it to be based, a judge based upon its merits. And I think that came as a bit of a shock to the establishment because it destabilized the gatekeepers of knowledge. Are you grateful that the internet was able to do that, particularly in the profession that you're writing in now? Well, what would we know about this debate if it wasn't? I mean, we're, we're in the revolution, which is like the printing press, but kind of faster in a sense, if you know what I mean. And it, it is extraordinary what we're going through, this historic turning point. Um, of course, they're coming after the internet. They're coming after free speech in every way they can because they don't have the truth on their side they ultimately will lose any public debate, and which is why they're now attacking uh, Elon Musk as hard as they are, because you can't have a breach in the damn wall, you know. If you're trying to maintain a society where you're levitating a lie, and that's what the whole global warming debate has become, a levitation of a lie, a myth, that a an essential chemical of life that we all breathe, we are carbon life forms after all, uh, and we're demonising it, we're calling it pollution, it's undoing all the years of chemistry, you know, and which reminds me of the funniest thing. I, I had a, a great guy here, um, 
in Perth, Stephen Harper, he went out and he did interviews in the street. He actually volunteered and he stood in the main mall of Perth and he asked people questions, he did a full survey and asked them questions like, if you had carbon in your body, would you want to get rid of it? And lo and behold, a lot of people said yes, you know, and if carbon was in my breakfast, oh, my goodness, yes, I wouldn't want to eat carbon. And so it was great because what he showed was just how much of what I'd call year 10 chemistry that we learned in high school has been completely unravelled and undone by the propaganda campaign calling the sixth element of the periodic table pollution and the kind of nonsensical debate we're in. And... so we're at this strange point now, and I do think the most important thing that we can do right now is the red-pilling of people to so that they know that the media is an active player, an activist, a propaganda, a political tool, and as long as they realise that they have to hunt for the truth, we will win. But as long as they think if they tune into the news at night that they're getting both sides of the story then, you know, well, then we can't control the debate. We can't put our voices forward. And, of course, we never care whether the other side speak up. We're not afraid of their arguments. We're afraid of what they say. But they're very afraid of us because, and they can't even make jokes because, you know, there's no humour in levitating a lie, is there? I mean, it's just propaganda beat you over the head with it. Well, humour is very dangerous to propaganda. That's why you're not allowed to laugh. But uh, what you say there, if, if people don't understand carbon, well, that's very sad because most people used to leave at the very least year eight science and understand that carbon is the building block of all life on Earth. It's quite bizarre to find out that people don't understand this. But I'd love to know a little bit more about you. It says that you majored in microbiology and molecular biology, and the articles on your blog are clearly showing that you have a love and a passion for science. What drew you to the scientific profession in the first place? I just, I'm a curious person. I, a curiosity, just want to read, want to uh, pick up things. And I've become a generalist because everything is interesting, if you know what I mean, if you look into it far enough. And so I did a science degree and I literally just kept picking the topics and drilling through. And, and I, I got to genetics because it was obvious to me even that long ago that it would change the world. And we are at the start of a medical revolution at the moment. People may not be aware, but... It's coming through faster than everyone expected. The predictions of a lot of things, reading the human genome, we understand the code of biology, of life, and we can manipulate it at at levels which are actually quite terrifying. And it was clear to me then that genetics would change the world and rule the world. And so, you know, I got into it, but I discovered that I'm not cut out for being in a laboratory (laughs) I kind of have a form of ADHD. You can't afford in a genetic experiment to not pay attention. They're three-day experiments with 36 steps. You can't screw any of them up and everything you work with is a radioactive nucleotide or a carcinogen or both. Um, So, but, you know, so it's great. I feel so lucky. I found a career where I can write about what I want to write about. I can read papers that I'm passionate about and try and condense them to help other people understand what's going on in these edges, cutting edges of research. And I guess, you know, getting around twelve to 14,000 people a day tuning in every day of the week from all around the world and living off donations now all these years, you know, it's um, it's been extraordinary, a very strange kind of journey here on the dark side. Oh, that's, and, that's yeah, a... But I just I feel blessed, lucky to be able to do that. 
Well, that's funny. It's a little bit like me. I used to love astronomy so much and I studied it for many years. And then I realized I'd rather write about it and share that love with other people than to sit there recording signatures from space, which uh, is quite dull for a 24-hour job. So look, from, from this whole thing, you've become this prominent Australian author and an international guest on the stage, including programs like Mark Stein, of course. And I'd like to point out that your blog is not just a collection of articles, as many blogs are. It's also a repository of scientific knowledge that others can share. And you've very kindly put it up there for them. Are you trying to share and expose this uh, information for others? Is that your goal with having this blog? Information is our friend. As long as you're in the hunt for the truth, then the more information you have, the better it is. And But it's not just about bulk information. Of course, we're all drowning in information. It's about condensing it into small bite sizes that are useful. And, you know, what's kind of sad, though, is I've become much more almost a political writer in, because science has become politics. And I think there was a great quote from someone, I can't remember who, who said, once science is a mix of science and politics, there is no science. It's all politics. And it is kind of like that. And I still put up these studies, which I find interesting about climate change, about, you know, two million years ago, how hot it was in North Greenland. And, you know, <laughs> that was natural climate change with mammoths, I think, and uh, large animals, you know, romping across the Arctic up there. Wow, you know, this is what the real climate change can do. And I still put those stories up largely for people on our side because we um, we are based on the truth and it. it we need to know and understand why we're right in order to have confidence and to argue it. Uh, on the the other side of the spectrum, as I said, I used to be green. So I'm kind of friends and I know people on both sides. But on the other side, it's much more about consensus. It's much more about, well, everybody says this is true in the science world. It must be true. And that was the most common thing we heard when we went to Bali, it, just person after person, was would would say, but four thousand scientists say it, and you know how can you say that's wrong? And so it is a really interesting thing about I guess half the population kind of need to believe in authority. I, I guess they find it it's a comforting, it's a pretty scary world when you start to think that the people at the top are not looking after you, that they're actively lying, hiding things, suppressing the truth. And I guess a lot of people just can't do that, and. But there's also a huge fashion element about what's going on with the Greens. And, and having been on that side of the spectrum, I love it when I get sat next to them on a plane, for example. You, you know, it suits me so well. I, I'm, I'm quite happy talking to them and, you know, I can push buttons. It's very easy once you understand what's going on. Most of them are good people. And that's where I think to win this debate we need to get the good people from the left who, the ones who used to fight for the workers, the ones who used to fight against corporations and don't realise that they've become the minions of the big corporations, that they are arguing and pretending to fight, you know, fight the climate deniers. They're the ones who've got the establishment on their side and they think they're speaking truth to power. They think they're being brave and radical to say, ooh, the world is changing and climate change and I happen to agree with Klaus Schwab and, and Larry Fink and every, you know, prime minister and president who, except for a few brave ones and there's not very many left, um, you know, it's just a comical kind of situation really, isn't it? They always paint themselves as the underdogs well, it's a when pretty... they're standing there with, 
It's a billion-dollar industry, trillion-dollar industry behind them. Of course, but it's a pretty tragic misreading of science to think that a consensus is what science values when truth is what science values. And so much of the scientific story is actually about individuals standing up against consensus to say, hang on a second, I have evidence that this is not the truth and that we need to change our way of thinking. That is the entire process. And I can't believe how quickly people forget the true story of science. Uh, it's almost as if we're living in a different reality. But on that topic, the climate change scam is a big deal because it is the fabrication that underpins an entire family of lucrative scientific falsities and the power structure of organizations such as the World Economic Forum. Joe, a lot of people shrug off climate discussions, imagining that it's not relevant to their lives. How insidious and powerful is the climate narrative? And what happens if ordinary people allow it to continue unchallenged? Well, it, it doesn't just underpin the scientific world, as you said. It underpins our civilization. Fossil fuels made us what we are. It gave us the freedom to get out of the fields where we would spend all day just trying to collect the food and the firewood to keep us warm and survive at night. Fossil fuels allowed us to build universities, to read books, to run the printing presses, to spread information, to have time to teach our children how to think, how the world works. And now the fossil fuels, of course, they're bringing the frozen peas to Coles or Woolies and whatnot. And when we add taxes on, and that's what we got in our electricity bills, they're invisible taxes, they are making everything more expensive because, of course, everything needs you know, as I as I joke, you know, it only applies to things that we heat, cool or move. And what else is there? You know, everything we do, we heat, cool or move. And so energy underlies it all. It's driving inflation and, you know, let's talk about productivity. But it, it's, it's so basic to civilization and it is to deny us so much of what's possible. And, you know, as I say, burn oil and feed the world because it, it, carbon dioxide is a wonderful plant fertiliser, of course, and aerial fertiliser, which helps increase crop growth and provide you, you know, the, the breakfast, the cereals, increase the crop yields, increase the forests, green the earth. Everything about it is really great. Um, so it, it is this bizarre idea that, that carbon is pollution, that it's evil somehow. It, it's almost an attack on us, you know, as I keep saying, we are carbon life forms after all. I, keep, I think they forget that it's actually an equation. So if you raise carbon dioxide, the plants grow up to eat it. It's a food scenario that's going on. It doesn't just go nowhere. It falls back to the ground as, as feed. But I'm sure this is why uh, places like Wikipedia include the climate-denying slur whenever you are mentioned. It is a feeble attempt to discredit the powerful evidence that you present. And, Joe, I've noticed... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great point, Alexandra. And, and, and I just want to pick up there that, that name-calling, climate denier, that is so core to the entire push for this. It's about bullying and coercion. And I am kind of disappointed in my 20s that I didn't see that any science debate that's sort of caught around name-calling is obviously false. You know, you have to look at the ones who are putting out the names there to know that the argument is not based on the evidence. It's not based on the observations. And I, I guess I'm disappointed as a young Green that I didn't see that red flag. I don't think I used the name calling, but I still read it. I still saw it. And it bothers me that I wasn't trained. So we need to teach the children. One of the first things we need to teach them is that name calling in a debate is always done by the loser, the one who hasn't got the good argument. And it, it will help them spot the con men 
uh, spot the cheats, the people who are trying to control them through bullying. And so much of this debate is pure bullying. It's about making you feel bad for asking a question. It's about making you feel stupid for saying, but hang on a minute, isn't CO2 a basic part of photosynthesis, as you just said, which it is, <laughs> It's you know? And this whole idea, I remember years ago they used to say, we need a carbon market, we need a free market, as if it was somehow a free market principle. And just ignoring the fact that, you know, we're talking about an elemented periodic table here, something made by yeast in the Pacific Ocean, the algae and the photo... <laughs> <laughs> the oh, idea yeah, car carbon's, not, carbon's not sitting there going, you know what, you've paid me extra taxes this week, so I'm going to make the climate nicer where you are and I'm going to punish you lot over here for your factories. It's just not how the natural world actually works. But, uh, Joe, you, your earlier work, when I was going through your blog, I noticed that it focused more on the United Nations and uh, what was mm. going on with climate policy, for example, the IPCC, whose very dull and long reports I have read. But now you've been shifting your focus toward the World Economic Forum. Is that because there has been a transfer of power toward the WEF? And, or is the World Economic Forum simply more proactive when it comes to engaging in scary world domination themed activities? I think, it, yes, it has. And I think it was always there, but they've become much more open about it now, much more overconfident. And, it, you know, it was easy to dismiss all those conspiracy theories. But then you start looking at what the World Economic Forum is putting out. And I think just yesterday, the day before, I had a document put out by them. And it's kind of bizarre. It's about how cities around the world should be laid out about what kind of transport systems we should use. And it looks for all the world like you would expect it to be mm, a one world government putting out, which is just a weird thing to say, right? But hey, Bob Brown said it once and no one called him a conspiracy theorist when he thought it was a good idea to have one world government. So it is, um, it, the World Economic Forum has become something, I'm sorry about the phone in the background there, um, they've become something enormous, but I think they were always there and I think it is it is a sign behind them of the money that drives this and, you know, it always comes back to money. So I want to draw people's attention to, you know, Klaus Schwaber, and he organised a ski conference for billionaires. It was a very smart move in a networking sense because once you had a ski conference that billionaires and celebrities went to, well, everyone wanted to go to it, didn't they? Um, but he is ultimately just a ski conference organiser for billionaires. The people with the money behind the WEF, the ones, the big sponsors who go there, are more the ones with the decision-making power and they are, you know, the Larry Finks, et cetera, of the world. A lot of his power is a bluff and I think it's really important that people understand where this is coming from. And, uh, you know, I guess, Alexander, you've heard the stories about BlackRock and Vanguard and State Street and how big they are and what kind of influence they have. Yes, well, see, the problem is a lot of the power of the World Economic Forum is not written anywhere. You can't go and reference it or point to a document where it says, we have given ourselves this power. It is the power of suggestion. It is the power of networking. It's the power of backroom handshakes that no one can observe and find out what's really going on. But that is still power, and it's quite insidious because it, it sort of presents itself in ways you wouldn't expect. So something is said at a conference like, I don't know, let's live, uh, let's live in a 15-minute city, and all of a sudden all the politicians who are in the room there have gone, yeah, let's pass some policies that measure that, and then suddenly some businesses that were there as well go, all right, well, we'll create some products that are going to capitalise on that. And so it, it is power and it's very difficult to criticise it as power because, as you say, someone can come and go along and go, well, it's a, it's a conspiracy theory because you can't prove it, but it is real.
So it, we don't need to prove it because it, you just look at the numbers in this and it will become obvious. And we saw, I guess, the incredible power in 2020 when uh, the World Economic Forum started calling things the Great Reset. And then suddenly all of our elected politicians, as you said, spooky, were kind of using the Great Reset and Build Back Better as if it was, you know, an instruction that was emailed to them and that they paid attention to. And I guess the power of the uh, World Economic Forum, all the players behind that became much more obvious. Now, to know why they have power, we have to actually look at the numbers and the money. And this is where people need to understand that groups like BlackRock, uh, the largest asset pension fund managers in the world, and they have something like $9 trillion worth of assets. That's $9,000 billion worth. Now, it's not their money. It is your money. It is superannuation funds, pension funds, retirement accounts, and people have stopped paying attention to their money. And unguarded money is so dangerous because Larry Fink gets to pull all this money together and then walk up to leaders of nations and say, by the way, I'm running a $9 trillion fund and your entire government, you know, as I think I only said to Mark Stein a few weeks ago, your entire government GDP in Australia is 1.5 to 2 trillion, bigger than us. You know, they are the third largest country in the world if you view them in terms of GDP. And, and they, they kind of turn up and say, well, you know, actually we want you to get rid of your coal and if you don't, you know, you can imagine all the things that are said by people with that much money. We will... To tell all our friends who give you donations that they mustn't donate to your party. We will raise the interest rates on your government accounts. All your loans will get more expensive. Uh, your stock market will suffer. You'll, you know, they can bring recessions on in nations by withdrawing their funds. Now, this money isn't Larry Fink's, but, and, and not to isolate him because there is also Vanguard, State Street, there's a string of these enormous companies, but they hold shares in each other, they work together, and it is the enormous money behind them that gives them the power to scare even the largest corporations and governments in the world and to say to them, we're going to vote you out next time you have a board directors meeting, and who's willing to stand up to that? And almost no one as an individual is, and that's where the way we fight back is to red pill as many people we can, to spread the word, to deny the media their power by switching them off and switching to other media channels, by taking our subscriptions to the media and donating to <laughs> random to bloggers on the internet who say what you want to be heard, just to put in an advert, please send me some money. Um, but it, it's, you know, there are lots of ways to fight back. We haven't got long to fight back because they're clamping down on our freedom as fast as they can because, of course, you know, we threaten the big powers by simply laughing at what they're doing. Um, well, but it is, BlackRock, it, it is a bluff and we can pull it. If everybody says, as, as Florida and I think 23 states of the US are fighting back now, saying we want our money back, we don't want our pension funds of our earners in our state being used by you to crush the same companies that they we voted for that we legally allow that are honest producing companies making a service we want, employing people and providing, a you know, gas, coal, electricity, and you're punishing them with our pension funds. And so it is great to see that being pulled because this is the centres of power, the levers, the archers of control in the world. And so I am hopeful that um, it, it's, it's not the end of things. It's, it's the beginning of a battle. But, boy, oh, boy, we've got work to do. Well, it's important to remember that uh, 
our politics and our legislation still has supremacy over the power of corporations. And that is why corporations are frightened of what the citizens do and what they say, because we could easily change the laws on them and make life more difficult if we chose. But this isn't the first time that we've had powerful companies that have more influence than entire nations. I mean, we can look back at the East India Trading Company, for example, and see what kind of power they had in the old world. And it's not actually any different to today. We just seem to be having trouble viewing our present reality from that framework. But there's also something unreal about the World Economic Forum. I mean, I'm not sure if it's the, the leader with the heavy German accent decked out in robes, if he's some kind of dystopian <laughs> sci-fi character, or if it's the lair in the Swish Out ski lodge, as you said. There's just something about the way that they do business that feels a little bit crazy. Now, I don't know how else to express it, Joe, but when Klaus Schwab says he will take the cars to save the world, I assume the worst. Have you been successful in raising the alarm? Well, yes, I think, as I said, I think we are. We, despite the censorship, despite crushing us, uh, when we look at big polls, uh, the, the national polls of people, we find actually most people don't believe the religion, as we call it. And, it, and that message about it being a religion is really important. Uh, Vivek Ramaswamy in the U.S., called it a, uh, a religion, which we've been doing for years, but because of his uh, power and pull and coverage and whatnot, running, you know, as a presidential candidate and being in re a regular guest in the Wall Street Journal and other places, he, it, it, it was really interesting that Rasmussen ran a survey after he said that. And in the US, 70, uh, sorry, 60% of people agreed with the statement that climate is more religion than science. And 47% of them strongly agreed. So that's nearly half of the people surveyed in the US who said it, it is a religion and I really believe that. So it's a very powerful meme. So repeat it wherever you can because it undoes so much of what's going on. And just to get back to the money, of course, you know, we sceptics are the ones who are the volunteers running off small donations from mums and dads on blogs. The other side are soaking in billions of dollars. And all the time and everywhere we see when I, you know, I looked at the numbers in 2009 and found that the funding for sceptics was one three, one three thousandth of the funding that the believers got. And yet they would accuse us, and I think Wikipedia still does, they get everything wrong about me, by the way, everything, you know, the year I was born, everything's all wrong. Um, it's funny, and I don't bother trying to correct it, that they, um, the money in this is just so enormous on the other side of the spectrum, which brings me back to, I think I read a blog post last year called The Dark Bubble which kind of explains why things seem so insane at the moment. They're not just insane in climate and in science, insane in money, insane in the transgender debate, insane in all kinds of debates across any sort of thing. How do we arrive at this position of madness? And the answer is driven by money. You look at the money supply, you look at where money's coming from, the central banks. Our money underpins our e economy. It, the price of money is the interest rates. It's set by a bunch of central bankers. It's not set by the free market. And it's become an enormous bubble. You look at the money supply that has just taken off and it explains so much because it's crazy money. And how does one guy, say Larry Fink, get to have control over where 9,000, like, like 9,000 billion dollars, how does one man get to derive that? Well, every couple of generations, humans seem to end up in one of these bubbles like the South Sea bubble you mentioned. 
and it just fuels this kind of craziness. The nuts just levitate on crazy money from nowhere, blinked from thin air by low interest rates for so long. Shall we mention, you know, Mr Lowe and the talk now of, of interest rates and how trying to control inflation by low interest rates. Well, how did he create the inflation through low interest rates and no one ever blames him for it, hardly. But anyway, sorry, we're digressing so much from no, no, science, that, but I guess a, looking at the science of money, that, that, to a, me it's fascinating and no one talks about supply and demand of money as just another good that has a supply and demand for no, no, well, science is often underpinned by large quantities of money from powerful organisations. But look, this is a very serious topic, but let's have a little bit of fun too, because as you said earlier, they hate humour. Now, you've seen more than most in your research. What is the craziest topic that you've covered? Because for me, I thought the most insane thing I ever read was about turning wind turbines into gummy bears for kids to eat. That's my line of craziness. Uh, what would your craziest thing be? We're just reporting so many crazy, silly things now. You know, the young activists who think that gluing their hands to the floor of a Volkswagen factory was a way to save the world from storms and floods and droughts and things like that. I mean, it's just comedy from end to end. And the response to the Volkswagen engineers was really funny too. I don't know if you know that story. Um, I think it was in Germany, and they just said, fine, okay, we'll shut the factory down, which is what you want, we'll turn off the lights and we'll go home. So they did. So they left the um, the protesters glued to the floor, and the protesters then got to realise what they hadn't really thought 10 minutes in advance of how do you go to the toilet, how do you get a drink of water, how do you do anything once you're glued to the floor? And so, you know, for me that was just one of those funny, crazy moments where you realise that, that the left are thinking not more than five minutes in advance where they're at. And it, so, yeah, that protest was a win for the um, – it, it kind of stopped the gluing your, for, you, gluing your hands to the floor well, it was Protests. a bit. I don't think they've done ones after that because it was so self-defeating. No, it was a bit of a lesson in reality of uh, unintended consequences. Like the guy who was uh, suspended from a bridge somewhere, and they left him there for a few hours just to chill out for a while. But the scientific community once prided itself on having an inquiring mind, and yet whether it's COVID, climate, or gender, there is a distinct lack of curiosity among your peers in research and academia. For example, when uh, doomsday predictions failed to pass, where was the criticism of the theory? It doesn't feel as if we are living in a pro-science era of humanity. There is no honesty left in the debate and so we mock them all the time with the predictions of five years till the end of the world and, and it, you know, which started way back in about 1988, I think. So this has been going on forever, those stories of only 10 years left to save the world. We see the pattern and it just keeps repeating over and over. But there is a weird kind of brainwashing going on in that the people who watch this on the left in the media and soak that up must just continually believe it. They must keep re-editing their memories and ignoring the fact that all their predictions haven't come true. Instead, they see in this brainwashing, they see every every flood, every drought, and every, you know, bad weather day, every hot weather weekend, you know, now 30 degrees in the year in the UK is getting health warnings. And it's <laughs> here in Australia, you know, 40 degree day. Are you kidding me? A 35 degree day in Australia? We we're Australians. We don't care about 35 degrees not summer if you don't hit 35 degrees or 100 on the old f scale the old 38s so 
it has become bizarre and and I think we pop that bubble every time we're brave enough to stand up to it and that's where what we need to do I think is train a lot of people on uh, and I don't even like saying our side but just to train good people that standing up to bullies just one person one voice at a dinner party is very hard to be the one person who does that but it does make a big difference. And we see that in studies on bullying and uh, in, in psychological tests on people who will look at, you know, there are studies of people who look at two lines on a graph and one is obviously smaller than the other. And if everyone else in the room who's part of the experiment has said, no, no, the um, short one is the long one, then the eighth person who's the real test subject in the experiment will agree with them, even though the eyes tell you that that's not true. Um they say it knowing it's false, but also kind of thinking everyone else has said this, it, there must be a reason why I have to say this. But if one other person out of that group of eight before them said, you know what, that's just wrong, you're all crazy and this is the short line, then so many more of the test subjects will change their point of view. It really makes a big difference. But when you stand up to the, the crowd, of course, the mob, you, you have to expect the pushback. You need to put your armour on and just smile at them when they come back at you calling you a denier or some kind of name calling. And you have to shift from being someone who talks about science, unfortunately, to talking about the name calling. And that's how we win. Unfortunately, we can't even discuss science in a debate where people are using name-calling. You, you have to talk about the name-calling. You have to talk about the way the debate is fought, the fact that they swallow the language and they spit out these different meanings on words which we're used to. You know, what is climate change? Well, I believe in climate change. We have ice ages. It's But the word has become to mean man-made kind of uh, floods, droughts and bushfires and by definition it's, so they, they altered the language and we have to fight for that. We have to fight for the language. And I, I must say one of the things I'm quite proud of is fighting for the word sceptic because back in the day, 10 or, you know, 14 years ago when I started, people would say to me, Joe, don't call yourself a sceptic, you know. Climate sceptics are just, you know, it's a bit toxic. And, and I said, no, damn it, I want the word sceptic. If you're not a sceptic, you're gullible. And um, and what's the opposite of sceptic? Gullible. And, and we need sceptics. Science is about scepticism. And so I fought for that. And I made badges, cartoon badges, um, which just call people unsceptical scientists. And strangely, the unsceptical scientists didn't want them. They never took up the badges. They didn't use the T-shirts. And, and so because it mocked so much to call them an unsceptical scientist, it really exposed how silly it was. And, and I confess I do feel kind of proud. I think we won that word back and years later then you find the believers will start to say, well, of course we're sceptics. And that was when I knew we had won the word back, when they started to say, well, being a scientist is to be a sceptic and started to pretend that they were sceptical too. Yeah, well, so, you, you've yes, made strange you've, little quiet battle. You've made such a great point because often what you find is, even though everyone seems to be in agreement, the second that you say, hang on, that's actually quite crazy, the most common response is people to go, yeah, I know, right? But that's what you hear most often is people agreeing that the world has gone mad. They're just too frightened to say it out loud or be the first one to do so. But as we finish up here, Joe, uh, as a last question, it astonishes me how readily people appear to accept their new reality. The brute force of economics and government mandate does work for the most part. But I happen to, I'm wondering now if there are lines in the sand that we are about to cross, which 
the public will not accept. And I thought it would be the, uh, you know, eat the bug might be the line, but you know, then we had school kids in Australia eating cricket chips, so that's not the line. But uh, if you remember Kevin 07, he lost that election in part because he went after the tradies utes, and that was a line that people didn't want to cross. Are there lines that we're about to cross in the era of net zero, like taking people's cars away, or power bills getting too high that you think might actually undo this ideology? I sure hope so, Alexandra, because we've kept crossing lines all along the way that I thought were uncrossable lines. Um, it, it, it's hard to believe people will give up their cars. It's I think the electricity bills is the point when the craziness will reach. And we see a lot of that. There is pullback at the moment. The energy wars in the in the in Europe have shifted the ground, and we see now finally nations coming out in Europe. I think great work by uh, Georgia Maloney in Italy, we're seeing work in Poland, we're seeing where people are starting to say, well, hang on a minute, we're in, we do kind of need nuclear here. And it, it, the whole point about nuclear too is so powerful because how do you know it's all a scam? If they cared about carbon dioxide, they would be shutting down, they would be building nuclear power plants, wouldn't they? And they would have started it in 1990. And we would have now, like France, we would be powered by nuclear and there would be no problem but that's the point. They don't want to solve the problem because the problem is, the you know, <laughs> the bug is the feature. The, the crisis is what they want because it is about power and control and stopping you flying and stopping you driving and the freedom of getting in your own car untracked to drive wherever you damn well want. Uh, and, so, and the freedom to turn the light on on the wall at home and get that electricity and do, you know, heat your home the way you want to heat it. So it is... It is crazy, and I think the electricity bills, people are opening at the moment, 30%, 25% rises in Australia. I think that is a point where people go, something's got to be wrong here. We keep putting in wind and solar, and it never gets cheaper. And so we are seeing a turn back in Europe where people are realising that energy security is important and that their national sovereignty is, sovereignty is being threatened by not having enough energy, we even saw uh, Vice-Chancellor Habeck in Germany saying just a few days ago, he was actually warning the Greens. He was <laughs> he was warning them that needed to focus on energy supply and because they're still, Greens are still protesting that they, they can't put LNG plants in and he has realised that the heat pump things, that pulling back on cars. So we, we are seeing turnbacks. Well, I think we are close to peak ESG, or environmental social governance, um, or even beyond peak, we're looking back at it. But we've got to keep fight. We've got to fight for every moment here. And I guess just to repeat that point about standing up for stuff, I don't want to set people up to fail because if you're at a dinner party where everyone's a green believer and you speak up, it, it's really tough to get that pushback. It's so much better to do it one-on-one. -on -one. And you'll find a lot of people, even greens, one-on-one, -on -one, just start talking about the power of big money. Start talking about the influence of single corporate giants and you'll find that they agree with a lot of what you're saying and it's an easy door in to just raise the awareness of what's going on. Um, you've got to be super brave to do it in a big group and I applaud anyone who's got the balls to just do that knowing you will get pushed back. Well, yeah, that's what we need to do. We all need to be brave. We need to stand up to the name calling and stop kowtowing, especially the politicians on the right, who you see them just kind of obey everything, too afraid to stand in front of a camera 
and uh, utter the words, you know, carbon dioxide is a natural plant food. No, well, Joe, look, you're so right, particularly that part which I think deserves repeating where you pointed out that climate change is the problem, but it's also the goose that's laying the golden eggs for everybody. They are not about to uh, get rid of the climate change problem. But thank you for joining us today. Uh, where can people find you and follow you? Well, if you Google Joanne Nova, you'll find me and all the people who hate me and... Uh... <laughs> And the Wikipedia false pages and everything else. But, yes, just joannova.com.au where I try and post something, you know, five or six days a week uh, to just undercut the madness, to share something which I think, you know, good minds need to know to add to the conversation. And I must say, you know, getting into the comments has been such an education for me. Uh, it's the free market, the free market in words for where people correct me if I get things wrong within minutes, within hours, and it's such a great learning tool to make sure I don't stray too far from the truth. Well, that's all from us here today. I'm Alexandra Marshall. Catch you next week.